0: You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's third lesson, Born of God, Philip Edwards will emphasise what a glorious future we have and the preparations we should be making for it. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, see our future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. I hope you're getting used to John,
1: his style, uh, the way he writes, not like Paul, as we said, like a lawyer would write, uh, but a man of passion. He... Uh, goes into poetry, he repeats himself, he goes back and comes forward again, and of course this theme of love is forever there, and uh, we're going to read quite a lot about love uh, this evening. Let me just pray, and then our staff she shall come and read the opening passage that we're going to study in this lesson. Father, we just thank you again, uh, because you're faithful to us in uh, revealing truth to us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to Uh, take in what you're saying to understand it and to be able to apply it to our lives father we ask this in Jesus name amen amen definitely come and read this uh, first passage 1 John 3
2: how great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother.
1: Finished there on a real strong note, didn't it? Everyone who sins is a child of the devil. You think, that's a a bit strong. Well, he was called uh, with his brother the sons of thunder, and probably that's why he was. So he's he's a real mixture, this guy, John. He's a very compassionate, loving sort of person, and yet he was called Sons of Thunder. Anyway, so we'll we'll look into that a little bit further as we go along. I want you to imagine a man who is born blind. He gets married, and then he has some children. He lives with his wife and his children, but this... Blindness is a permanent thing. One day there is a breakthrough in medical science and surgeons can do something to bring back this man's sight. What an amazing moment. He hasn't seen anything. hasn't seen his wife or his children. His life from this moment forward is transformed for him. He begins this process then of living with eyes that can see. After years at which he had only appreciated his wife, his children, by the words that they said and the sense of what he picked up and possibly touching as well. But now he can see. It's suggested that uh, when people start to look at each other and look a lot, you take on that person's face. I don't know if that's true. They say sometimes when people have pets, they end up looking like their pet. That doesn't sound too good. Uh, But have you ever thought that thought? You've seen the owner of someone with a dog and you thought, oh my Lord, you know, they look a bit like their pet now. There are some ugly animals around, so I'm not suggesting that's uh, always the way. There's a possibility that when you look at something or somebody or someone's face, that your face changes. You, you don't realise it, but it just it just does. Anyway, I don't know if those things are true. What I do know, though, is one day we'll see Jesus. Now, it, I don't, is that a big deal to you? It should be, shouldn't it? I mean, our life has been captivated by this man, and we should be looking forward to the day when we'll see him, because we've only heard what he's written and said, and we've only picked up what he's like by the Holy Spirit. We've sensed it, but there'll be a day when we'll see him. We'll see him face to face. You can read a lot from someone, can't you? You know, sometimes someone gives you a bit of a look and you think, I've overstepped the mark here, or a very warm, welcoming thing, or you feel a bit down, and then just the smile from that person, it changes. It changes everything for you. We, one day, will look into the face of Jesus. We'll see his smiles, we'll see his facial expressions. We just need to meditate on some stuff like that sometimes and thinking that'll be something special in the world to come We shall begin to know him in a whole new way, simply by looking at him. Something, I believe, mysterious will happen when we do see him. We will know what we will be like. See, when we do see him, we won't be like him, will we? but we know as we continue living with him, looking at him, being with him, that's when the work of transformation will really take place. The Word of God says we will be transformed to his image. I think that when we go from this world to the next, that process continues in a far more powerful way, a far more real way, because we'll actually be living with him and seeing him. We will see him as he is. We will live with him. What do we know about this future world that we're going to enter into? Some of us are closer to it than others. Uh, sometimes I think as I get closer to it, I'm more interested in finding out what it's all about. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, yeah, I think I do know. That is true. Um, I'm, I'm more inquisitive. I wonder, I wonder if I could get myself more ready for the world to come. Life, then, in this new world, God's new world for us, we can have two opinions. One can be, um, it's not like this world at all. I suggest to you the other, some people believe we somehow become spiritual and go live somewhere up there. There has no relationship with this down here. I sort of struggle with that because I don't know how to think about that. We can't. We've got nothing to think in that way. Or is the world more like this one, more like it should be in this world. This world without the corruption, without the decay, without the death, without the injustice, without illness, sorrow, shame. The same as this world, but all that bad stuff gone. So it'll be more this world More the way God had always wanted it. There'll be no tears, we know that. Unless they're tears of joy, that is. And there'll be no barbed wire. It'll be different, but the same. But what will we be like in the next world? Like we are, perhaps? Only more. See, if I think this world is going to be like this and only more, I think I'm going to be like this and more. More gloriously physical. Embodied, but not subject to sickness and death. The same me, the same you, living in a new world that's more able to celebrate the joys of the world that God created and always wanted for us without being seduced to abuse it. We do abuse the world. You can't escape that every day. You watch the television and there's fires everywhere and floods everywhere. And apparently it's all down to us because we've abused this world so much. It's There's always been fires and floods, but it seems worse now, doesn't it? We lust after things in this world. And when we get them or don't get them, we worship them. That's the world we live in now. James had something to say about this. Remember, he says this in James 4, 1 and 2. What causes fights, he says, and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? you want something but you don't get it you kill and covet but you can't have what you want there's a lot of wanting in this world to possess things that's what wars and strife and argument and struggle is all about but in the world that he's planned for us that won't be there we'll happy and be content We'll live in this enhanced version of the world. But more importantly, we will be more like Jesus. He was made to live in God's world. We looked that first week, didn't we? He stepped from the future into the present to show us what God's world was like. And John said, we saw him. We handled him, we touched it, we heard, we saw what the world was going to be. If you think, oh, what what heaven's going to be like, really just look at Jesus. He came from there. He, he is what it is. He brought it to us. We will one day be like him, like the risen Jesus, the same yet somewhat strangely different from him. Remember when the apostles met Jesus on the seashore after the resurrection? Interesting little verse or a couple of verses in John 21. Let me read them to you, verses nine to 12. Remember, Peter didn't know what to do because Jesus had been crucified, he had risen, but he was confused on what to do they decided to go fishing. It was natural, that's what they did. They were fishermen. What else would you do if you don't know what to do, but do what you always do? So they turned to fishing. They wouldn't be rebellious in any way, they just didn't know what the next step was. But they went fishing, and this is what it says in 21, nine and 12. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it. They come into shore and they see it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter, he climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. When you read detail in scripture, do you ask the questions, why does it give the number of fish? Why does it say they were all big? Why does it say the net wasn't torn? Well, probably because the net should have torn with such big fish and such a large number. It was natural for that to happen. We know that they were mending nets all the time. Jesus said to them, come, he said, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was Jesus. That's a bit weird, isn't it? If they knew it was Jesus, why would they have thought to dare to ask him, Who are you? you go, it doesn't really make sense that. They were confused. Is this Jesus? We think it's Jesus, but we're not sure it's Jesus. Shall we ask if it's Jesus? But we know it's Jesus, so we won't ask him. That seems to be what was going on in their heads. But When you think about this, they see him after the resurrection, as it were. This happened to a couple of other people, didn't it? Remember Mary, when she was in the garden, she thought, this isn't Jesus. This is a gardener. Now you're thinking, that's that's weird now. You could say, oh, she was crying and she couldn't see properly. I don't think it's got anything to do with that. There's another example as well. When Jesus walked with the two men, remember, on the road to Emmaus, it says they were disciples of him. They walked for miles with him. They listened to him for all that time, and they still didn't know it was Jesus. It's just beggar's belief, really. What had happened to Jesus that was different about him, that they weren't sure? He had gone through death he still bore the marks of this world with the, the nail prints in his hands and the wounds in his body. So he was naturally of this world, but there was something different about him. He would never die again. See, that's the hallmark of heaven. So that's what confused them. He seemed at this moment to belong to both worlds. He belonged to heaven, the world to come, and he belonged to this world. And there was a bit of him that they saw and a bit of him that they didn't get. It's as though the two had come together. In Revelation it says this in Revelation 21. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. This is the strongest verse that convinces me I'm not going to live in heaven, that heaven's going to come down here. God chooses to come and live with us. He doesn't say come and live with me, he always wanted to live with us. When he created the world, he wanted to be with his creation all the time. He created a beautiful world for his creation to live in and his plan was to live with us in this world. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. At this point, the world to come and the existing world will become one. It will be joined together. In Ephesians 1 and 10, this is what Paul writes. It says, to put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Christ has all authority given to him in heaven and in earth. On this day he will come and he will be the head of both heaven and earth. The world that we are to look forward to. John is trying to excite us, excite his listeners about the world to come. If we don't think of the world to come... We just have to live in this miserable one. But God says, no, as Christians, we have the anticipation of this wonderful world that's going to come. Everything will be transformed. And you go, well, I'll just battle on then a few more years because of the glorious hope that we have. All things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. It talks about reaching its fulfilment. I don't think it's the end. I think that's the beginning. The fulfilment is when it all really starts. Why all this speculation about us in the future? What we will be like? What where we live will be like? We constantly need to remind ourselves of a glorious future. We must. And of course, we need to remind ourselves of the glorious presence that we have. It is into this present world that Jesus stepped in and revealed himself to us, that we could become children of God that our life could be transformed. He came and stepped into this present world that he might display God's new age to us. Some people say you can be so earthly minded or so heavenly minded, sorry, that you're no earthly good. I don't agree with that for one minute. I think some of us need to escape sometimes into the reality of what God has prepared for us so we can drag ourselves through this thing sometime but appreciate that Christ has come into this world to change things. Already, we are God's sons and daughters, yes? Does that mean anything to you? It should do. It should do. We don't feel better than anyone else. We just feel privileged. For some reason, God has revealed himself to us that has changed our very status forever. We can't undo it. We can't run away from it or step back from it. We've been invited into this wonderful relationship. This is just the start. Who knows what the ultimate will be? Can we prepare for the next world? Can we make ourselves ready? Should we be preparing ourselves for the next world? John says here, he's pure, so you need to be pure. He's driving the point, you see, we can be pure because we're meeting someone who's pure. So if we're gonna do something, we better get ourselves right. I've thought for some years now, the most important thing when I meet Jesus and he's going to ask me, well done, good and faithful servant, what I've been faithful in, is obviously the things that he's given me to do. But the most important thing, I can be faithful to God in his word, is that I love people. Because the word of God says there are three things that remain, your faith, your hope, And your love and the greatest of these is love. So I thought from here on in I'll be the most loving person I can possibly be. So where do we start loving? We start at home don't we? So I'm trying to be the most loving husband I can possibly be. You'll have to check that out with my wife. She might not have even noticed any change in me. That could be a positive or a negative thing but at least in my mindset The idea is, if that is the most important thing, and I'm on the home lap, I need to focus more on that than anything else. And as John says here, we're going to meet a pure Jesus. So perhaps we could think purity of life is important. It's a bit like if you were meeting, uh, I don't know, a colleague at work that was from another country, Wouldn't it be nice at least to say uh, hello to him in his own language, preparing yourself for the meeting? Or if you were going for an interview of a job, uh, find out something about the company that you were going to so you weren't completely ignorant on the day. You knew the ethos of the company and what their aims were and uh, some things about the people that were going to interview you, if you could possibly do that. Preparing yourself, we perhaps should be concentrating on how can i prepare myself for the world to come prepare myself for meeting jesus all we think is oh well i'm born again that's it i'll get in even by the skin of my teeth i'll get in that's not the way that we think how can i prepare myself for what god wants we're going to meet jesus in the last few verses there john issues a very Uh, worrying challenge to us. Let's just look at this as we uh, finish off this section. Verse 9, it says, No one who is born of God will continue in sin. Uh, This is our son of thunder now coming at us. Following Jesus actually means a transformed character. We need to be different from what we used to be like. John knows we're going to sin. All Christians will sin. We don't know everything. We sin because we don't realize it's sin sometimes. We sin because other factors are pressurizing our lives. Or So he's not silly. He doesn't say, you won't sin anymore, now you're a Christian. He knows that we will. What he's talking about is we've lost the habit that used to control our whole lives of sinning. That's gone. Sometimes we will slip up. We won't go on sinning. It won't be our regular mode of life. This is what John is driving at. Really, we should do our best to avoid all types of sin. I read this somewhere. It's as though we're playing a piano, a different piece of music that we used to play before. We played another tune before we met Christ. Sometimes, as we play this one, not that I can play a piano or play anything, as a matter of fact, our fingers slip and we play the wrong note. It's like it's a note from the the song that we used to play but we only slipped a note. We didn't start playing the old tune. We're still playing this tune, but we've, we've slipped a note, as it were. We've played something of the old music. Some might say, well, because of God's grace for us, which is so wonderful, does it matter if we sin? I mean, does it really matter? It does. It does. It's serious to God. So we will, but we must never be complacent about it, is what John is saying. To carry on as you were and think that no change is required in your life is to show whose side we're on. We're not on his side if we think in that way. And in the end there, he seems to think that the greatest sin that we could ever for, ever commit really is to fail to love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. He puts it very high on the list, but he would, wouldn't he? who's not a lawyer, who's a lover. We get this side of of God, this side of teaching that challenges us about this whole way that we live and how fellowship and relationship is so vital and important. In the second part, we're going to realise how difficult and costly it is, and John knows that. As he goes on to explain it later in this chapter. Okay, that'll do us for that first lesson. Welcome back to the second part of our talk this evening. Uh, We're going to get at the very heart now of what John is all about, about loving uh, one another. I'm going to ask Daphne again if she'll come and uh, we'll put her to work this evening. Uh, We're going to read from uh, 1 John 3 verse 11. And it's gonna go down into chapter four and verse six.
2: This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised my brothers if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Chapter four. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. But we are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood.
1: I said in the previous letter that John is described for us in two ways. He's called the beloved disciple. Actually, he calls himself the beloved disciple because uh, he, wrote, he wrote it and it appears in John. Uh, but I think that was a genuine uh, way that they thought about him. The other is that he was one of the sons of thunder. And I said it's a, a striking difference within the same man. We finished our last uh, lesson, the first, uh, last part of that letter, with a very strong statement. The sort of thing that earned him the reputation of a son of thunder. It's three, uh, 1 John 3.10. I'll put it in my words. Anyone who does not do what is right is a child of the devil. Anyone who does not love his Christian brother and sister is a child of the devil. That is very strong. That's basically what we have read there in the previous lesson towards the end there. John sees that faith in Christ is all about loving people. And if we don't, then our faith is void really. It, it, it's, it's a bit empty. 1 John three fifteen says this, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Again, very strong statements that he's making. But hasn't he picked up on what Jesus has said? Remember, he said in the in Matthew on the Sermon of the Mount, if someone hates his brother, from my perspective, my judgment of him will be the same as if he was a murderer. So he's picked this very point up that Jesus has made. He identifies those who don't love as being like Cain. Again, very strong. He can't emphasize any stronger our lack of love, our failure to love is horrendous, really. It's so damaging to our Christian life. He says in this passage that Cain belonged to the evil one that Cain's actions were evil, it says. Cain was a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life in him. When we're born again, eternal life enters into us, the life of God, and he says, people who don't love, they don't have Christ's love in them, they don't have the eternal life within them, he can't get any stronger. We've already said that walking in this love is very costly and it's difficult to do. It is. It's, it's much easier to love people that we don't know very well. But as Christians and we get close to people, that's where the love becomes costly. To be superficial with everyone Love doesn't cost you anything. It's easy because you don't see them. You don't get involved in their lives. You're quite separate from them. But as soon as you come into a relationship in the way that a Christian should and you start to fellowship deeply with someone, it is so hard to walk in love. Now, added to that, John also says, and the world hates you because of it choosing to walk in love, choosing to be forgiving and to build relationship, the world will hate you for it. It won't understand you because it has other agendas. It has other priorities. The greatest evidence that we are born again, the only proof really that we are born again, is that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot prove to me you're a Christian you can only prove it to yourself if you don't love your brothers and sisters then you've got to question whether you're even born again but if you do and you know how difficult it can be but you can still love them that is a proof that eternal life is within you he states the triple condemnation as it were if we hate he says We remain in death. Anyone who hates is a murderer. And murderers will not inherit eternal life. John then goes into describing what love looks like for the Christian. If we love, we will do the same as Jesus, he says. We will lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We'll do the same if we are materially blessed and we see our brothers and sisters in need, we will help them. We won't ignore them. Our love will not be a question of words only, but actions. He's he's really steeped in this whole idea of to be a Christian is to walk in the love of God. I said how John, when he writes, he repeats himself, he goes back and he repeats himself and you'll sound like, oh Philip, you're repeating what you said last week or the week before. Of course I am, as I go through it, he repeats it, so I repeat it. It's something that we're getting used to. The love that we have for our fellow Christians, he says, is the only real proof that we possess eternal life, the life of God. If this love is not in our hearts, then we don't possess eternal life. He says, actually, your heart will condemn you before God. Hmm. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn anyone. I came to bring people life. He says God doesn't condemn us either. God isn't. He's like Jesus. He isn't about condemning. What is it that condemns us? The word of God, as we read it and we listen to it, it challenges us and our hearts themselves condemn us. We know whether we love or whether we don't love. We know, and if we don't, God doesn't condemn us for it our hearts condemn us. John then steps back into uh, this thing about um, the discussion about Antichrist. You thought, I thought we were over that, Phil. Sorry, he brought us back into it again. He's not talking about the Antichrist who's coming. He's talking about Antichrist, remember? All these people that were, uh, were coming forward and saying, oh, Jesus wasn't really the Messiah. Uh, He came, but uh, there is another Messiah and trying to drag people off to the new Messiahs that were appearing. People were confused. Jesus came and went so quickly. Three years is a very short time. Uh, And of course, they didn't have the communication that we had. People maybe only just stumbled across Jesus as it were, and he's gone. What's this? Maybe he's coming back again. What is it? What is it that God is doing? And so people were being led astray by these false prophets and antichrists. He says this in 1 John 4 4 that Daphne read to us. You, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome them, these false prophets, these antichrist people, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We see because we have eternal life within us. We see everything with eyes of faith. We know. John talks about the anointing that is within us. It's knowing something on the inside. This is so vital to the Christian. There are people with many arguments to pull us this way and that, but sometimes we've just got to look inside and know what the truth is. Remember the story with uh, Elisha and his servant? Uh, the king of Aram was wanting to attack Israel, and so. Uh, Every time he came, he was the king of Syria around, every time he came, Israel would be able to defend itself. Uh, So the king thought there must be a spy in our camp who's telling Israel all our plans of how we want to attack. And then they discovered no, it wasn't a spy at all. It was Elisha, the prophet. God would tell him what the king of Syria was going to do. And just before he did it, he would go and tell the king, and then every plan of the Assyrians was, or the Syrians, sorry, was thwarted all the time. So they thought, well, we just get rid of Elisha and then we'll destroy Israel, take Israel captive. And we know that story about how Elisha is in his home with his servant and uh, all the Syrian soldiers come with their chariots and they're on the hillside. And uh, the servant goes outside and he sees all these, and he's panic-stricken, he really is. He rushes inside and he says, Elisha, they're gonna come and they're gonna take us. And he says, Lord, open his eyes, remember, and he goes outside and he sees on the hillside, he sees chariots of fire and angels of God or flaming fire. Don't be afraid, he says, there are more of us than there are of them. This is the same thing that John is trying to say to the people who are being challenged whether they have the truth. Remember, he's gone on to this antichrist thing again. Was Jesus really the Messiah? He says, what is in you is greater than all the lies that are around you, just Focus on the anointing that you have within yourself. You know the truth within you is what he's saying. Discover that the forces with us are greater than the forces that are against us. This is important. This is what John wants us to understand. What you have in you is greater, more powerful, than anything the enemy can send against you to destroy you. You need to know that. Another illustration, remember when Peter steps out of the boat. See, looking inside of himself, he thought, I can do this. I can walk on water. I know I can do it. There was a force within him that made him think he could do it. It's a real thing to think that you can take on the enemy. Whatever the enemy is, the enemy for Peter then was the sea and the storm and everything. And he thought, what's in me is greater than this storm. And of course, he goes and he starts to walk on the water. But instead of still focusing on the strength that was within, he focuses on the force that's on the outside. And we know he starts to sink down into the water. And What Jesus said to him, it sounds harsh, but I think we're reading it wrong, because Jesus would never be harsh. He said, you have little faith. Not faith in me. His faith in Jesus wasn't doubting. It was faith in himself, you understand. He walked on the water, not because he exercised faith in Jesus. He exercised faith in himself. He knew he could do it. A strength was on the inside of him. But of course, once he focused on the problem that was outside, his faith fell away and he doubted and he started to slip down. John, in this passage, also warns us not to love the world because God's presence and power is with us. We can overcome the world. We can. It doesn't matter what the challenge is, what difficulty there is. God has placed eternal life within you, and you must overcome the world. Well, so often we pray for Christ to whip us out of everything as though he we were a genie, coming always to the answer. I find The older I get as a Christian, he comes less and less because he wants to develop the strength inside of me, me knowing that we can get through this stuff because we have eternal life within us. Don't keep asking God all the time to dive in and get you out of it because you'll become disappointed with him, but the truth is he won't do it because he loves you too much to deliver you. He loves you too much to leave you in a childish state because he's transforming you into the image of Christ. It's tough, it's costly, but it's worth it. We shouldn't want anything else but to grow up into him. We overcome in life because what is in us is greater than what is happening around us. That's why we feed upon God's word. That's why we feed upon him, because we want to build what is in us bigger and stronger and more powerful that whatever comes against us, we know we're more than conquerors through Christ. The people around John at this time who he's writing to they're in danger of being confused, aren't they? It says some of our very fellowship, the, the people who lived and walked with Jesus, they've left us uh, to chase after some other antichrist or something else that the prophets are saying. He says, no, be careful. John's advice is to test the spirits. What is he saying to do? Ask these people, is Christ the Messiah? Is he God come in the flesh? If they say anything else, you say, no, you're a false prophet. That's what he means by test them. They were trying to say that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't God's final message to the world. There were others that were going to come. He said, no, test them, ask them the question. The word, he says, became flesh, and he lived amongst us. God's Son lived amongst us. He says, do you know this is true in your heart? What you know in your heart will confirm the truth. (laughs) Agreeing that Jesus, the Messiah, has come in the flesh is crucial to our salvation. If you take the reality and truth that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ that came. If you take that away, we don't have Christianity. We have nothing. It is so vital to what we believe. Why is it so important that Jesus is the Messiah? An innocent, sinless man had to die for the sins of the whole world. No one else could have done it. To have a sinless man, it's got to be God come in the flesh. That's just it. That's the end of the argument. Nobody else could die for all the sins. Only an innocent man, and an innocent man who wanted to die for everyone else, the Messiah. God himself couldn't die, could he? God couldn't come and die, but Jesus could come. He could take on 100% humanity, which enabled him to die, and yet be 100% divine God that would make him sinless. There was only one person, possibly, who could have done that, and that was Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Any other Messiah is a lie. Any other saviour is a lie. It had to be him, the Son of God. God, innocent, had to die. The Father didn't force Jesus to do it. He willingly came to die for everyone. John, he finishes this section with another warning. He said, people who speak from the world's point of view will always be popular. I find this in church. If a church can can, um, get as close to the world as it possibly can and minister to Christians, they become more popular. To stand separate and away from the world and declare just what is the truth is often rejected. So churches are often trying to get as close to the world as they can to appeal to people. There's a falseness in that that doesn't work. John says, we know the meaning of God. We know who God is. Because Jesus came and lived amongst us to show us who God is. When we lived with him and we listened to him, and saw him, and spoke to him, and journeyed with him, we were looking at God all the time, and we knew this. Peter, who do the people say that I am? Oh, you're a prophet, or you're John the Baptist come from the dead, and I said, who do you say that I am? (laughs) He said, you're the Messiah, you're God, I've seen who you are. I mean, such a moment, you can't imagine what Jesus thought at that time. My ministry has not failed, because these people can see that I am God. That was it. Now, having captured his heart, he's got him, hasn't he? Imagine you met God, and walked with God, and lived with God, you're never going to drift away, are you? You say, listen, I don't care what you say or what you think or what you know, I lived with God in person. I walked with him and had food with him and touched him and we went on mission trips together. I was with God. All the 11 knew this. Eventually, they all knew it, so he felt that his mission was finished and complete, and he could entrust these 11 with this amazing revelation of truth. No wonder they turned the world upside down. No wonder they were all prepared to die for him because they met him. Have you met him? You go, well, I wish I was around so I could have seen him in the flesh. I know, so do I. But I'm glad I'm here now. And he says, the truth is, that which is preached to you by the apostles has the same effect and power of helping you to realize that you've met the living God. I can't wait to meet him. Can you? I mean, I'm not looking to die tomorrow, understand me, but the longer it is now, the more passionate, the more excited I will be for that day to come. The thought of going and someone praying me back, it would be horrendous, wouldn't it? Leave me, please, don't ever pray for me. Let me die and let me go and see him the one who is so vital and important, not only to me, but to the whole world. We've got to love Jesus passionately with everything that we have if we're going to move forward in the way that he desires us to. We're like Elisha's servant. We now know the truth. We've seen him in here. Like Elisha. Couldn't even bother to get off his bed, could he, to go and have a look. He knew, didn't he? He knew the chariots of fire were there that he sent to his servant. He said, go and have a look when you see them. You will know what I know. What did he know? What did Elisha know? We've already won the victory. We've won already. And they're all made blind. Do you remember the end of the story? All these uh, Syrian soldiers, they come down and they can't see anything. So Elisha comes out of his house and says, "Uh," they say, do you know where Elisha is? And he says, yeah, I know where he is. So I will take you to him? And they go, yeah, we'll take you to him. And he led them in their blindness to a place of captivity. And then the king said, shall I kill them all? And he said, no, let them all live and go home. Let them tell their king how gracious we are. And so they did that. And Israel had peace. Isn't the prophet of God smart? Very smart. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. It might not look and feel like it when the waves are crashing and the storms of life are around us and we think, I'm going down, I don't think I can cope with this. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You say, how can I know this? You keep reading it until it becomes a reality within your spirit. And then there isn't anything that can defeat you. We know, because of the anointing that is in us, we know the difference between the truth and the lies that are all out there, because of the anointing. Remember I said, you've been Messiahed. Same root word. You've got it on the inside of you. The spirit who lives inside of us, we've already overcome the world, is what John is saying. And he's pleading with these people to realise the truth and the reality of what they have.
0: You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at ariseministryuk. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.